good evening, good evening. Hey, before we get into our, uh, our, our message tonight, uh, Steve and Kim Walls are going to come and just share a little something with us. So I just so appreciate Steve and Kim. They have helped to anchor our finance team for many years. They oversee our altar prayer ministry team here. They serve once a month on the Saturday Life team. So can you just say thank you to them for how much they serve you so faithfully? They just have a story just about how God has, has moved in their life with our, with our 2020 vision that, that we're uh, raising money for. So I'm going to let them share about that. You know, we, we've talked about the 2020 vision, and we've heard stories about how, you know, um, God has really blessed people, and um, our life is just kind of a testament of that. Um, we pledged an amount, and last Saturday, we just gave a portion. We didn't even pay our whole amount. We just gave a portion. It wasn't even a full week within that time that God blessed us 10 times over with raises and things to over just match that amount. So yeah. while we gave, we got 10 times over that amount within three days. Yeah. So I just want to encourage you. God is so faithful. If you'll just, his word says, prove me. Yeah. Prove me. Give me a chance to bless your life beyond measure. Um, we're at a place that we never thought we'd be, but it's just because we've been consistent with ties. Give generously, and it doesn't have to be a big amount. You don't have to go, well, you know, I don't have that much to give. God honors the little bit that you say, I want to give this to you, God, and I want you to do whatever you can with it. And he's going to surprise you so much that you'll, you just can't imagine it, yeah. so... I tell you, City Life is just good ground. Fred and Vanessa, Juice and Steph, when they do the South Side, Jamie and Michelle, when you give into good ground, God's going to just bless you. Uh, you can't help but reap the harvest. I'm telling you. It, it, this 2020 vision is a time I just encourage every one of you, if you've been thinking about what's your next step in your walk, and just encourage you to, to, if you've been holding back from the financial part of your walk and doing more, Now's a great time. I just encourage every one of you to go home, pray this week about it, talk with your spouse, and just challenge God to, to just fulfill His Word. That's all we're asking. Just, God, do what you say you're going to do. Tell us, prove that you're the God that you say you are, and God will never, ever disappoint you, ever. Just encourage you this week to just go and do that and see how God moves in your life. That's good. That's good. Thank you. I, I think that's one of the things I, I, I so love about our, our, our church is that the only thing that we ask people to do with their finances is just to be obedient to what God says to them, right? And, and then we walk in that obedience, we walk in his favor. And, uh, and so we so appreciate Steve and Kim coming in and, uh, and sharing that with us. So I do want to do a giveaway. Got a Starbucks gift card here, and uh, I'm going to give this to Mariah because she's part of our CYP group. We, you know, we have our, our, uh, our college young professionals over every Friday night at our house, and, and, uh, and we do a Bible study together, and we eat some delicious food. We do a different theme every, uh, every month. And, uh, and I, think, I think what I actually found last night is the actual manna that sustained Israel for 40 years when they were in the wilderness because the seven-layer cookies that she brought last night, if I had to live off of something for 40 years, it would be those. It would be those. They were unbelievable. Unbelievable. We, we descended upon them like piranha. 
and, uh, and they, they disappeared quickly. So, hey, you know, we are in just our, uh, our wrap-up tonight. It's our finale for our series called Super. And uh, um, it's been a, just a hugely impactful series for me. I trust that it has been for you. But just exploring this idea of the capacity that God created all of us for excess. And the problem is that we have a tendency to always point it in the wrong direction, right? We overeat, we overspend. Uh, we did a weekend on oversexing. We did one on, on uh, uh, just this, 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 the whole idea of, of I have this ability to go over the top, to enter into superabundance, and I have a tendency to serve myself in those moments instead of serving other people. And, and so we pick this theme of, of, of super and superheroes because that's the, really the great difference between the villain and the superhero. They both have superpowers. One of them uses their superpowers to serve themselves, and then the other uses their superpowers to serve other people, and that's what we're called to do. We're called to a life of excess when it comes to the virtues that God wants to see birthed in us. And so Galatians 5, and at the end there, where it talks about against, against these things, there is no law, meaning that virtues like love and joy and peace and patience and the other four, what we call five in total great growth lists, which Galatians 5 is one of them, paints for us a portrait of the character of Christ. We should be living over the top in those areas. We, we don't want to diminish our capacity for excess. We want to point it in the right direction. And so tonight, we're going to finish up. I've been saving this one for the finale because I feel like this is one that many of us struggle in. I know it's the one that I struggle in, especially uh, it's this idea of overstriving. It, it's, 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 it's doing more than what God is asking us to do. It's taking too much on ourselves as opposed to relying on His sovereignty. And so, Father, as we dig into this message tonight, we, we, it would dig into us, and that there would be a liberty that we would walk in, there would be a freedom that we would walk in, not, not a laziness, not an apathy, not an inactivity, but just that perfect place of equilibrium between our effort and relying on your power. We want to live in that place, God, because we know that it's in that place we find your peace. In Jesus' name, come on, and everybody said, amen, amen. Well, we're, we're going to kind of dig a little bit deep into Scripture tonight together. And so we're going to be flipping through and tracking through several different stories. Uh, we're, we're going to start in 1 Chronicles 5, 1 Chronicles 5 verses 1 through 2. I shared a version of this with our college and young professionals uh, last month when, when, I, when I, was, I read this verse as we were reading through the Bible in a year and just God began to just speak to my heart in such a dramatic way. And so I didn't know then that it was going to be part of the series, but as I shared it with them, I knew that, hey, we, we've got to put this message uh, into the whole church, into the whole church. And so, um, so tonight is also about this idea is as you are developing the pathway, which is one of our 12 of reading the Bible, that, that you would remember, don't, don't just try to meet a goal of reading the Bible. Your goal should be to meet with God. And even if you don't finish the reading for that day, God would rather you have an encounter with, an encounter with him that can transform your life than, than just more information so that you can check something off your list and say, I don't feel guilty because I read today. You know? and, and so this is what happened to me on this day is that I had a certain amount that I wanted to read and I, I just I couldn't get past the first two verses. And I was like, God, quit speaking to me. I got, I got work to do here, right? I got goals to set. But guess what? This is part of what overstriving is about. This is part of what overstriving is about. All right, so 1 Chronicles chapter 5, 
First Chronicles chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. The oldest son of Israel was Reuben. But since he dishonored his father by sleeping with one of his father's concubines, his birthright was given to the sons of his brother Joseph. For this reason, Reuben is not listed in the genealogical records as the firstborn son. The descendants of Judah became the most powerful tribe and provided a ruler for the nation, but the birthright belonged to Joseph. Now that piqued my interest, not just because of a curiosity that I have to learn about the history and things like that. And that's part of, you know, is the teaching is part of my calling in the church. And so the, I'm, and those things happen, right? Because your, your gifting kind of drives your desires. And, and, and so, but I knew the Holy Spirit was speaking to me something. I knew the Holy Spirit was saying, Fred, you got to dig in. There's something here. And, and what kind of set that off for me was this idea of dividing the, 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 the birthright and the blessing. It was so out of the ordinary. The oldest son in a family was, would, would receive the birthright and the blessing. They went together. They did not separate. In fact, you wouldn't want the birthright, which has a lot to do with the responsibility of leading the family, without the blessing and the favor of God to go with it. And, and so, so I knew that something was in here that God wanted me to see, and he wanted me to see something for myself. And I, I, again, I believe it's something that he wants us to see for the whole church. So, so the first thing that I did is I wonder where I can find this story about what Reuben did. And so that kind of set me into my next place. And so if you want to flip over to Genesis 35, we're going to be bouncing all around. So if you've got a device, you can just keep scrolling and searching. Genesis 35, 22. While he was living there, Reuben had sex with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Jacob soon heard about it. And these are the names of the 12 sons of Jacob. And as I read that, I thought, huh, that's interesting because you think there'd be a little bit more story here, right? right? So, so one, of, one of his sons has, has sex with one of his wives, and it's just like this cursory mention, like he stopped off at Wawa to get a nice coffee, right? The way it addresses it, right, it doesn't seem right. It, it seems as though it, it's just glossing over it as if it's minimizing what happened, but that's not what happened. What's happening here is that, is that the story is building to this prophetic moment that we get to later. And so this is just a, 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 a little uh, uh, piece that God puts into the story to pique our interest for what's to come. So then I said, hey, where, where is, is there a place where, where, where Reuben's held accountable? And, and so as you jump over, you can find Genesis 49. Genesis 49. I'm going to work through the story, and then I've got three principles that we're going to draw out of the story together. So Genesis 49. So, so let, me, let, me, let me set the stage for you. This is like the reading of the will. All the sons are coming in. Now, this is what Reuben's thinking. I've done some bad things. I'm not even sure my dad knows about it. I'm, I'm getting off scot-free. Or maybe he knows, but he's just decided he's not going to hold me accountable because I am the oldest, and the oldest always gets the birthright. The oldest always gets the blessing. And maybe I've done some really bad things. Tradition is going to win out for me, and I'm going to walk out of here today a wealthy man, and I'm going to walk out of here today, the new leader of this family. So Jacob calls all of his sons together, and he says, gather around me, and I will tell you what will happen to each of you in the days to come. Now, in these days, these were 
prophetic moments. God would actually reveal to the father things that were going to happen to their children. So this isn't just uh, wishing something on someone. This is the whisper of God speaking to a man and him revealing it to the world. Come and listen, you sons of Jacob. Listen to Israel, your father, right? Because Jacob's name was changed to Israel. Reuben, you are my firstborn, my strength, the child of my vigorous youth. Reuben's like, it's going good, right? It's going good. You are first in rank and first in power. Reuben, you can see Reuben, right? He's looking around the room, smiling. But, see, when you're at a will, that's not the word that you want to hear that's connected to your name. But, you are as unruly as a flood and you will be first no longer. For you went to bed with my wife, and you defiled my marriage couch. And then he begins to move on to the next son. See, Reuben's day went from really good to something really else that we can't say in church, right? I mean, it's his day just got bad. It got bad. And as you continue reading, and if we were in the room, the question that you would be asking if we were there, who's going to lead the family? Right? There's been a plan. There's tradition. that Somebody's got to take the mantle of being the head of the family. Somebody's got to receive the birthright. Somebody's got to receive the blessing. So, 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 so let's keep going. So let's go down to 49, and let's get to verse 8. Judah, your brothers will praise you. You will grasp your enemies by the neck, and all your relatives will bow before you. Judah, my son, is a, is a, young, is a young lion that has finished eating its prey. Like a lion, he crouches and lies down like a lioness. Who dares to rouse him, the scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from his descendants until the coming of the one. This is a prophecy of the coming of Jesus. Until the coming of the one to whom it belongs, the one whom all nations will honor. All right, let me, let me jump down and let's go down to, uh, let's go down to, to, to uh, verses 22 to 26. I'm going to read this one out of the Holman Christian Standard Bible. I, I, I like the New Living Translation, but, but sometimes different translations render it better than the other. And so the Holman Christian Standard here, or the New American Standard, I think is the, the better rendering, and I'm going to tell you why that is. So I'm going to read out of 49, and if you've got a New Living Translation, you'll see it's very different. So, so Genesis, Genesis 49, I'm going to start reading in 22. Joseph is a fruitful vine. A fruitful vine beside a spring, its branches climb over the wall. The archers attack him, shot at him, and were hostile toward him. Yet his bow remained steady, and his strong arms were made agile by the hands of the mighty one of Jacob, referring to the God of Jacob. By the name of the shepherd, the rock of Israel, the God of your father who helps you, and by the Almighty who blesses you with blessings of the heavens above, blessings of the deep that lies below, the blessings of the breast of the womb, the blessings of your father excel. And it continues to go on and speaks of the blessing that's going to rest uh, upon him as a man. And, in his future. Now, the reason why I think the Holman Christian Standard, the New American Standard, gets this better because it's in keeping with Psalm 1. It's this metaphor of being a tree that's planted by the rivers of water. 
right? Psalm 1 says, Blessed is the man who walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of the sinner, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful, but his delights in the law of the Lord, and in it doth he meditate both day and night, and he will be like a tree that's planted by rivers of water, right? And then it says these three amazing things, that, 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 that he will bear fruit in season, that his leaves will never wither, and whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. And so I, I like the, the Holman Christian standard, the New American standard here, because it's in keeping with this, with this image that God gives to us, a person that's walking in his, in his favor, because we're, we're planted firmly by the river of his truth, and we're living according to his ways. And so we, in this moment of the reading of the will, Reuben, he's leaving dejected, he's leaving angry, he's leaving sad, he's leaving walking out the consequences of his sin, but Joseph and Judah are leaving and something incredible has been given to them but even more so something incredible is happening in history because the birthright and the blessing do not get separated and and when you come to things like this in scripture that are out of the ordinary it's not because God just has a flair for the dramatic and is drawing attention to himself it's because something prophetic is happening and what we find happening here is the beginning of the story of the coming of Jesus Christ is being firmly planted in the history of the world hundreds of years before it came. All right, let's look at Joseph and his sons. All right, so Genesis 48. Genesis 48. I'm going to start reading in verse 8. If you're a note taker, it goes all the way to 22. I'm not going to read all of that for the sake of time tonight. But Genesis 48, this is the fulfillment of what was, we had read in First Chronicles about the, uh, uh, the birthright being given to Joseph's two sons. Joseph's two sons. So 48, let me start reading in verse 8. It says, then Jacob looked over at the two boys and said, are these your sons? And he asked, he asked and, and yes, Joseph told him, these are my sons God has, has given me here in Egypt. And Jacob said, bring them closer so that I can bless them. Jacob was half blind because of his age and could hardly see. And so Joseph brought the boys close to him and Jacob kissed and embraced them. And then Jacob said to Joseph, I never thought I would see your face again, but now God has let me see your children too. If you don't know that story, it's an amazing story. You should read it. You can just back up there from Genesis. Joseph moved the boys who were at their grandfather's knees and he bowed with his face to the ground. Then he positioned the boys in front of Jacob. Now, we've talked about this text before if you've been with us for any amount of time. It's an amazing story. With his right hand, he directed Ephraim towards Jacob's left hand. And with his left hand, he put Manasseh at Jacob's right hand because the, the right hand is the hand of blessing and that should, be, that should rest upon the older child. But Jacob crossed his arms as he reached out. You tracking with me? So, so, so Joseph here, he understands his father's a little bit feeble. He can't see very well. So I'm going to help my dad out. I'm going to position the boys exactly in the place that they need to be so that when my father extends his hands, they're going to end up on the right person. But, but, as, but as Jacob extends his hands, he does one of these. And he crosses his hands. He put his right hand on the head of Ephraim, though he was the younger boy, and his left hand on the head of Manasseh, though he was the firstborn. Then he blessed Joseph and said, May the God before whom my grandfather Abraham and my father Isaac walked, the God, the God who has, has been my shepherd all my life to this very day, the angel who has redeemed me from all harm, may he bless these boys. 
And may they preserve my name, the names of Abraham and Isaac, and the many descendants multiply greatly throughout the earth. Now, I'm going to stop there for for the sake of time. As you keep reading, what you find is Joseph gets irritated. He gets frustrated because he feels like um, there's a mistake that's happening here. And this isn't a tradition. This is something real that's happening, right? So Joseph literally believes that his father's getting the prophecy wrong and the blessing is going to fall to the wrong person. But, but, but Jacob responds, I've done it the way that God has revealed it to me. Don't you love that he couldn't see? He was old and feeble. And even though I don't believe he knew which son was where, the Holy Spirit directed him so that the prophecy could be fulfilled. It's a powerful supernatural moment in the Old Testament. And I believe what was happening here, which is part of this idea of overstriving, is that God was teaching Jacob something that he desperately needed to learn long ago. Because in his story, he was the younger son. In his story, he was the one who had a divine destiny to break tradition. And instead of trusting in the sovereignty of God, he took matters into his own hands and he began to manipulate, he began to connive, he began to overstrive because he was failing to rely on the sovereignty of his God. Genesis 25, you might say, where is that story? And I would say, let's look at it together. Genesis 25. Make sure I'm in the right place. 24, 24 to 34. So when the time came to give birth, Rebecca discovered that she had indeed have twins. The first one with, was, was very red at birth and covered with this thick hair and fur. Covered with his thick hair and fur and coat. So they named him Esau, which means red. And then the other twin was born with his hand grasping Esau's heel, right? So this is, this is prophetic even here. So they named him Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when the twins were born. Now verse 27, as the boys grew up, Esau became a skillful hunter. He was an outdoorsman, but Jacob had a quiet temperament, preferring to stay at home. Isaac loved Esau because he enjoyed eating the wild game Esau brought home, but Rebecca loved Jacob. And one day they desperately needed the Growing Kids God's Way parenting class that we teach here at City Life. One day when Jacob was cooking some stew, Esau arrived home from the wilderness exhausted and hungry. And Esau said to them, I'm starved. Give me some of that red stew. And this is also part of how he got the name Esau or Edom, which also means red. All right, Jacob replied, but trade me your rights as the firstborn son. Look, I'm dying of starvation, said Esau. What good is my birthright to me now? And so if you keep reading, you find that they make this agreement. And, and, and I think many of us throughout our lives have been taught that Esau is the victim here. I think many of us throughout our lives, we've been taught that Esau is being taken advantage of here. But, but is Jacob manipulating because he's overstriving, because he has the sense of destiny and calling that God has given to him for his future? Absolutely. And he's overstriving, so he's manipulating. He's, he's taking advantage. But Esau is not and innocent here. And the reason I believe that is because I feel like that God has put in this story for us this picture of a, of a person who underachieves. And we're going to get to that in just a minute. That Esau knew that the blessing was where it was really at. 
And, and I believe that Esau, in this moment, because as you keep reading, it says that he, disp- he showed contempt for his rights as the firstborn. Many people interpret that to say he showed contempt because now he had lost it. I think that God's saying, no, 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 he gave it up because he had contempt for it. Because Esau did not want the responsibility that was required of the birthright. The birthright meant that you had now to be the leader. Was there an extra portion of money that came? It was, but that was not to enrich him as much as it was to prepare him to the expenses of being the head of the house. And so I believe what we have here is Esau is a picture of a person who does not want the responsibility that God is trying to give to him, and so he tries to pass it off on his brother. I don't think that either of them here is a victim. So if you keep going, again, we're not going to read it, but if you're a note taker, Genesis 27, 1 through 29, we have the story where Jacob actually, where Jacob actually steals not just the birthright that he did earlier in their life, but now he also steals the blessing as well. He steals the blessing as well. All right, now let me, let me give you these three points that I believe that we get from all of these stories. We're going to put, we get these notes online, and so if we're moving a little bit faster than you prefer, you can download that this week, and then you can begin to read through these yourself. You may not be able to disqualify yourself from heaven, but you can most certainly derail your destiny. When you make a vow of devotion to Christ, I, you know, different people have different beliefs on, on, on whether or not you can lose your salvation. I, I, I just say I'm going to leave that to smarter people than me to try to figure that out. The, the only thing that I can say is that, is that I'm not taking any chances with mine. And that I want to walk not just in his grace, but I want to walk in his favor. And I also know, I also know that, that if, you're, if you're only relying on his grace, if you're saying, I'm going to, because I've made a decision for Jesus, I know heaven is promised to me no matter what, then what I would say to you is that you might get to the heaven that's there, but you're going to miss out on the heaven that's here. You're going to miss out on the heaven that's here. You, you, you might not be able to disqualify from heaven, but you can most certainly derail your destiny. And, and the reason I say that is because if you study the descendants of Esau, who were the Edomites, when you read about them in the Bible, they lived a hard life. They, lived a, they, they walked a hard road. Esau walked a hard road. He walked a hard life. And I believe one of the principles that God is trying to give us in this story is that if you give your life to being an underachiever when it comes to the things that God is asking of you, you're you're, going to become a person that overstrives. Because you're walking in a place that God doesn't have for you, and I'm telling you, that's always an uphill battle. It's always an uphill battle. Now, you might say, Fred, if you've, have you ever read Romans 9? Because if you read Romans 9, then, then you might see that, hey, that, that Esau was a victim here no matter what because God had all, already chosen Jacob. And, and, and what I would say to you is, just because God had chosen Jacob, and it was Jacob's divine destiny to be the younger, but from him was going to become the prophecy of the coming of Jesus into the world, it does not give Esau permission to walk in a place of less character. And that if Esau had felt like for himself through prophetic insight, I'm the oldest, but I really think this thing belongs to my brother, then he himself should have trusted in the sovereignty of God that when he got to the place where it was time for the birthright and the blessing to go forth, that he would have believed that somehow, some way, that maybe the hands of his fathers would have crossed and God's will would have been done. We never have permission 
to shy away from the hard work that God asks of us. And that shying away from the hard work that God asks for us can sometimes be an excuse to underachieve and to say we're relying in his sovereignty. But there is a place of effort that we've got to be willing to walk in, but that place of effort can never go past this dependence on the power of God at work in your life. If you walk in a place of underachieving because you're afraid of the work, you're going to live in a place of overstriving. In fact, what I would say to you, if you have a sense of, of God asking you to do something, and the reason you're pulling back from it is because you're saying that's going to be too much work, actually not doing it is going to be more work because that's the uphill road. That's the uphill road. All right, let's do number two. I've got three I'm going to give you. Underbelieving leads to overstriving. Deception and manipulation are such ugly sins for the Christian because they are symptoms of something much more dangerous, a lack of faith in the power of the sovereignty of God. When we overstrive, when we overstrive, we overstrive when we underbelieve. And this is the part we've already talked a little bit about tonight, that all throughout these stories, we have these people that, that have the sense that, that God has made these huge promises to them. These huge promise to them. And, and if we stand in a place of underbelieving, meaning that we don't have the faith to believe that God's going to be able to fulfill what he's spoken over us, we begin to take matters into our own hands. Now, I'm telling you, this is one for me that, that I have to be careful about, right? Because I have a type A personality. I'm a task-oriented person. And, and so I can feel like, you know, God, I don't think that you're quite working hard enough here. I'm going to help you out, Right? And, and that's the story of Jacob, right? So Esau is this prophetic picture of the underachiever. Jacob is the prophetic picture. He's the pr prophetic uh, picture of the person who's an underbeliever. He does not believe that the sovereignty of God is big enough to bring about the fulfillment of the promise that he believes has been spoken to his heart. So how awesome is it? How awesome is it that even at the end of his life, even at the end of his life when really his work here was done, and there were no more real contributions for him to make in this world. God loved him enough. God loved him enough to, to continue to teach him about this idea of believing in him. Can you imagine what it must have been like for him when Joseph's sons were in front of him and it were his grandsons and his hands crossed? I think in that moment he had this picture of, of this is what it should have been like with me and my brother. We should have just been in the, in the tent of our Father, relied in the sovereignty of God, believed that God could do the impossible, could break tradition, could break the order of the world, right? There's just this, this belief that, that God is not bound by anything that is here. He's not bound by anything that is here. And I'm just telling you, I want to pastor from that place. I want to lead from that place. I want our church to walk in that place. What we're believing for as a church, for what we want to see happen by 2020, the campus that we want to see launched, this internship that we want to see come, the money that we're going to raise. We said from a governance team, it's got to feel impossible in order for it to be enough. Right? We just knew. We knew. And the risk there. The risk there is that when we feel like it's not happening like it's supposed to, we say, okay, God, we gave you a chance, right? If it, we're going to help you out here, right? We're just saying we're not going to be in that place. 
We are not. We, God has given us His Word. He's told us what is going to happen. The, the launching of this campus, the launching of this internship, and what we're saying is, God, we're going to do our part, and we don't have to worry about whether or not you're going to do yours because we know that you're always faithful. Underachieving leads to overstriving. That's the story of Esau. Underbelieving leads to overstriving. That's the story of Jacob. Now, watch this one. Undervaluing, undervaluing leads to overstriving. Genesis 49, 5 through 7. Simeon and Levi are two of a kind. Their weapons are instruments of violence. May I never join in their meetings. May I never be a party to their plans. For in their anger, they murdered men. This is the story of, of, of them uh, killing everybody in Shechem for the men having raped their, their sister. And, uh, and this is what we say when you have children. Don't let them read the Old Testament by themselves. Get them a kid's Bible because it's rated R. All right, just a little, little hint there for you if you're new to God's Word. Start them, out in the, start them out in the book of John. For in their anger they murdered men and they crippled oxen just for sport. A curse on their anger, for it is fierce. A curse on their wrath, for it is cruel. I will scatter them among the descendants of Jacob and I will disperse them throughout Israel. Now, now what's interesting here is this is spoken over Levi and his tribe becomes the what? The Levites. And they become the who? the priests of a nation, right? So what you have here is Romans 8.28 happening even before it was written because it was truth from the beginning. All things work together for the good who those who love God and are called according to his purpose. I believe that Levi and Simeon here is a powerful picture that's given to us from a person that, that is, is held accountable for, for their sin but doesn't use that as a permission to say, what was me? I'm just going to keep on sinning anyways. I think we have a powerful picture here of Levi walking out of that room saying, I'm going to live a different life. And, and what I love about this prophecy, what I love about this prophecy is that it, this is actually what happened to the Levites. They were scattered throughout the land. They weren't given an inheritance. They, they had no home to live in. The, the, the Levites were, were scattered throughout the land so that they could be the priests of the people. And so walking out the consequence of their sin actually became the ministry that they cherished and people that we celebrate today. When you read this, you're thinking to yourself, this must be an editing issue in whoever printed this Bible. Because when we understand who the Levites are throughout history and, 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 and their role and the significance in Israel, they become the spiritual leaders. How, does, how is that the fulfillment of this? Well, the prophecy is fulfilled in the fact of where they lived, but because they repented, because they turned their heart, God forgave and restored purpose to their life. Now, now why do I say undervaluing leads to overstriving? Because what's interesting here is, 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 is we continue to, to, to read all of these blessings and, and curses that were spoken. We, we find that a pattern begins to establish with, with people later in the Bible that you and I are familiar with. Moses and Aaron were from the tribe of Levi. They were Levites, right? And, and there was a time and a season where the, where the birthing of a nation was given to their responsibility, right? Because they were the leaders of the nation. 
But, it, but if you're tracking with what we're saying tonight, there was a prophecy that was given, not that the Levites were going to be the heads of a nation, but that Joseph and Judah, right? It was going to be their descendants that would be the leaders of a nation. And so what's fascinating is you begin to study some of the major players in the Old Testament, especially the story of Exodus, you find two key players in Joshua and Caleb, right? Joshua and Caleb were the people that came after Moses to, to be the key leaders of that nation. Joshua held the most prominent role, but Caleb held a significant role. And this is what we find. There's just interesting stuff in Scripture that I think has prophetic significance for us tonight. Joshua was from the tribe of Ephraim, who was one of Joseph's sons. Caleb was from the tribe of Judah. So from the shift of Moses to Joshua and Caleb, we see the walking out of the fulfillment of a prophecy that happened when Jacob was prophesying over his sons. And it's interesting that the two of them were significant in the leading forward of this nation because that's what the prophecy said, that they were both going to, that, that both of these tribes were going to hold key roles in this nation being born. But in that prophecy, if you remember it, it seems to imply that the tribe of Judah eventually is going to edge out because from him is going to be the one who comes, which is the coming and the prophecy of the, of, of the coming of Jesus. So we know that at some point, Joseph's significance in the story is going to decline and Judah is going to rise. And that's exactly what we see play out. Saul was from the tribe of Benjamin, who was the brother of Joseph. And if there is ever a story of this idea of undervaluing leads to overstriving, it's that of Saul. Saul desperately wanted to cling to being the power and the authority of a nation, even when it was being taken from him. And the one who came after him was David. And what tribe was he from? The tribe of Judah. So what we find here in this story is that that Caleb and, and Joshua represent the paralleling of Joshua of a tribe, I mean, of Judah and Joseph as tribes leading together. Saul represent this moment of Joseph's tribe, the Benjamites, right? It was his brother uh, continuing on in this leadership. But at some point, Saul was supposed to recognize that they had served their purpose in the story of the coming of a Savior, and he was supposed to give that to the one who would come after him. And it was supposed to be given to David because we know that Jesus is going to come from the tribe of Judah. I call this one undervaluing leads to overstriving because the Joseph to Judah shift is to remind us that we should always be prepared for our influence to wane so that the influence of someone else can rise. We must never undervalue the significance of others. If we do, we will overstrive when we undervalue them. John the Baptist is actually the picture of how it's supposed to be. He comes onto the scene, he's the man. People from all over come to see him. And when his disciples said, whoa, whoa, whoa. Jesus is the, he's got more than us now. He says, I must decrease so that he can increase. If, if, if we undervalue the importance of the one that comes behind us. Maybe the, the, you hear us say all the time, this next generation for us as City Life is more important to us than you, and we're unapologetic about it. We're going to serve you. We want to see you succeed in your life. But if you're going to succeed here at this church, you've got to join us in saying we want the next generation to thrive. 
We want the next generation. We're not going to undervalue the importance of pouring out our lives for them so that when we're a little bit older and we don't quite have the physical strength anymore to carry the vision of this church that God has given us forward, the next generation is going to be here because we did not undervalue them when they were young. At some point as a church, at some point as a church, we must decrease so they can increase. And if we don't, I'm telling you, it's a life of an uphill battle. And I want to live on the other side of the hill with the gravity of God's sovereignty at my back. Invite the worship team to come back up. I want to read out of Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1, verses 23 to 26. The Bible's rich, is it not? Rich, rich. So they nominated two men, Joseph called Barsabas, also known as Justice, and Matthias. They're looking for a replacement for Judas Iscariot. They're down to 11. They want to go back to 12. It says, then they all prayed, O Lord, you know every heart. Show us which of these men you have chosen as an apostle to replace Judas in this ministry. For he has deserted us and gone where he belongs. Then they cast lots. Which basically means they rolled the dice. And Matthias was selected to become an apostle with the other 11. And we know that's a cultural practice that we don't walk in today. But what we want to walk in is the principle. Because the reason why they cast lots, and you find them doing it all throughout the Old Testament in moments of really big decisions, it is as though they play a game of chance to discern God's will. It's because they understood what we want to get a hold of tonight. That we want to live in a place where we create an environment and, and a setting where, where we remove ourselves so that we can walk in the, in the sovereign will of our Creator. The reason why they did this practice is because they wanted to live in a place where they created a circumstance and a situation where only God could speak, where only God could move. And they, 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 they left their lives to these vulnerable moments because they knew that the safest place that they could ever be is in the will of God. So I don't know what you're carrying tonight or decisions that you're making or if one of these points speak to you that you have this sense like me sometimes of overstriving. Maybe it's because you're underbelieving or overachieving or undervaluing or, or maybe it's just as simple as that you have a hard time trusting God. I would just say in your heart, find a place where you can say to him, God, I want only your will to be done. Whether it's the choice that I want, whether it's my preference or not, if, if I were to cast a lot right now, may it be that what would come, the moment that would be fulfilled, the answer that would be given would be a Matthias moment. I would only want the choice that you have for me. In Jesus' name, let's worship together.
It's all about you. It's not about me. 